Did you know that the first Christmas carol goes all the way back to 129 AD? Or that for a couple decades, Puritans actually banned caroling? I'm Maggie Van Dorn, America Media's audio producer and the host of a new Advent podcast series called Hark, the stories behind our favorite Christmas carols. Since the start of Advent, we've been unwrapping one episode a week. And now you've got five great stories to binge. To get you started, we're sharing episode number four, O Come All Ye Faithful, or as some might know it, Adeste Fideles. Even though I still struggle to pronounce it, this one has become a new favorite, especially as I learned about its more subversive history. It's truly the underdog's carol. And if you enjoy this episode, you can check out the entire series by searching Hark in your favorite podcast app. We'll also provide a link to Hark in the episode show notes. From everyone at America Media, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. When I hear this song, I know that the season has officially begun. O Come All Ye Faithful is the hymn that I expect to hear to kick off Midnight Mass. My church sang that every Christmas, and I get really into it, especially in Latin. When I was a high school student and studying Latin, it was one of the first songs that we sort of used as a translation exercise. Most church organists around the world They know it's Christmas when they play that chord for the fourth verse of O Come All Ye Faithful. I just think immediately of the kind of swelling organ at the beginning of that song. Welcome to Hark a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn, and over the four weeks of Advent, we're unwrapping one song at a time. We'll look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious messages baked into their lyrics. And this time, we're listening to O Come All Ye Faithful a carol that has been known to divide opinions passionately. If you grew up in Glasgow, you would understand we wouldn't go anywhere near the English version. Okay. Perhaps you might know this carol better as Adeste Fideles, or, as you may occasionally hear me mispronounce it, Adeste Fideles. 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 Oh, this is, I mean, Fideles. Adeste Fideles. Oh, gosh. Adeste Fideles? I don't know. (laughs) Adeste Fideles. We were singing it in Latin because Catholics would never dream of singing that carol in English because that's what the Protestants did. I'm Andrew Cameron Mowat. I'm a Jesuit from Scotland. Andrew is also the parish priest at St. Ignatius, a Jesuit parish in Stamford Hill, North London, and an accomplished music director and musician. I was trained as a pianist and then I did a bit of training in the organ. And I grew up uh, with a great love of music. And I started playing the piano from the age of five. 
based on the tune that the ice cream van played. So I picked that out on the piano in our house. And my mother took me down the road to a piano teacher and said, Andrew needs to learn the piano. This is driving me crazy. And the piano teacher said, but he's only five. And she said, don't worry, he's good enough. Besides the ice cream truck anthem, young Andrew gravitated easily to Deste Fideles. Well, it's my favorite carol because I heard the arrangements by Sir David Wilcox from King's College, Cambridge, sung and by the choir when I was eight. Why was an eight-year-old transfixed by an old Latin hymn? Well, because of a single chord. And that chord was a miraculous chord. And really hearing that chord played on the organ and where the music phrase went and how it fitted with the text and how it inspired Catholics who... Catholics never sang in church. They only sang Christmas carols. But if you heard 800 or 1,000 people belting out Adeste Fideles and hearing that chord, it really it turned me into, I suppose, at the age of eight, I was going to be a liturgical musician. Whatever else happened, that's what I was going to do. And also, I was definitely going to learn how to play the organ because I really wanted to learn how to play those parts of music. We'll return to the miraculous chord later. But first, where did this song come from? We got Adeste Fideles from different monasteries and places as wide apart as Italy and Netherlands and France. And it, eventually it's all put together in Latin by John Francis Wade in about 1750-something. It's in the mid-18th century that we find Adeste Fideles recorded in several manuscripts. But it appears this carol had more than just religious ambitions. The manuscripts in which the hymn first appeared were laced with symbols and prayers for the Jacobite movement. A little refresher on the English monarchy. Charles Edward Stuart, or Bonnie Prince Charlie, was an exiled Catholic who sought to reclaim the English throne. The Bonnie Prince raised an army to invade the British Isles. They were victorious at Edinburgh, but were ultimately crushed at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. And not only was Adeste Fideles included amongst these revolutionary manuscripts, our hymnist, John Francis Wade, was a known supporter of the Jacobite cause. So, it's quite possible that Adeste Fideles doubled as a Jacobite rallying cry, couched in a Christmas carol. But, of course, this can't take away from the fact that Adeste Fideles is still chock full of Christian theology. A lot of people, I think, learn their theology from Christmas carols as children. And that's why, again, this is such an important carol. Because if you look at verse 2, Deum de Deo, Lumen de Lumine, that's the Nicene Creed right there. I was just going to say that. Right. So in English, it's God of God, light of light. True God from true God, begotten, not made. It's absolutely fabulous to have uh, the text of the Nicene Creed as a Christmas carol. And so if we look at these lyrics, God of God, light of light, I have here, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. It's not a very good translation, is it? <laughs> abhors not the virgin's womb? I mean, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Doesn't sound very good, does it? He doesn't mind becoming incarnate. He doesn't mind the Virgin Mary's womb so much. Yeah, but that's not in the Latin at all. All in the Latin is, he was born of the womb of a virgin. That's all the Latin means. What's this abhorse stuff? 
he had to add in words that fitted the melody. Just, in fact, the very word, oh, actually, adeste is just saying, come all you faithful. But because the tune had da, da, so he had to add in the word oh. Right, because adeste is two syllables and come is one. Yep. And then also with the fourth verse, ergo quinatus die hodierna, born on this day or born today, becomes born this happy morning, which is not, again, that's not in the Latin, because he had to add in syllables to make it fit the melody. And just who had the daunting task of translating this text from Latin to English? An Anglican clergyman by the name of Frederick Oakley. So he translated it into English because he wanted Anglicans to sing it. Like John Mason Neal, his contemporary who translated O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Frederick Oakley was also a part of the Oxford movement. This was a mid-19th century Anglican movement that sought to revive the classics, but which was controversial because it was so drenched in Catholicism. And then as a consequence, I think, of this, he then became a Catholic priest. So he would have to have sung Adeste Fideles, which is rather amusing. It's ironic, because Oakley translated the hymn to English, but then after his conversion to the Catholic faith, would have been singing it in Latin, or at least surrounded by Catholics who leaned on the Latin as a way of distinguishing themselves from Protestants. This religious divide seems to have softened with time. So I'm quite happy to sing it in English. Although I do know, I did hear from my sister the other day that she still refuses to sing it in English, even though people around her are singing it in English. She sticks to the Latin, and then they glare at her in a rather angry way, but she keeps going in the Latin. What a controversial song. (laughs) Yes. So let's talk about this magical chord that transfixed you at eight years of age. What is the chord? How would you explain it to a layperson or maybe to an eight-year-old? So this arrangement, it was an amazing chord I'd never heard before. That Sir David Wilcox used for the word word. And the text is word of the father now in flesh appearing. And this is such an important text for us, all Christians, that the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And that's from the Gospel of John, right? Yeah, and that's the essence of what Christmas really means. The real theological miracle of Christmas is that the Word of God becomes flesh for us in order to save us. The Word becomes flesh. And that miracle very much grabbed me And that chord was a miraculous chord. It's a miracle because of the effect it seems to produce on its listeners. But there's also a very musical explanation for its magic. It's basically in a major key. And it doesn't go very far away from the key. It stays within the key major, which is a sort of a home key and a peaceful key and a warm key. And so Adeste Fidelis, it's probably just three chords, and that's all you need. So here under the word word was a, an incredibly different chord. It was a minor chord. And it had a wrong note in the bass. So the wrong note had to be resolved 
What does that mean, a wrong note? It doesn't fit with the chord. It's actually the chord of D minor. And D minor doesn't include B in it. So it creates some sense of tension, like we're no longer at home. There's a real tension there, and you feel that we can't stay on this chord for too long. We have to move to the next chord. And in a way, I felt that that inspired the congregation as well to keep singing and to keep singing loudly because there was a real sense of direction of coming home as the phrase comes to resolution. When I talk about a chord resolving, it's a sense of coming home back to the main key. And it's like if you're playing baseball and you're on second base, you don't want to be left stuck out there. You want to get back home. This miraculous chord comes from the genius of Sir David Wilcox, who first debuted this arrangement when he was music director and conductor of the Choir of King's College, Cambridge. Andrew isn't the only one to recognize its Christmas magic. That's the point where you realize, like, oh, it's Christmas. My name is Parker Ramsey. I am a professional harpist based in New York City. But in the past, I have worked as a professional organist, including with my training at King's College, Cambridge, where I served as organ scholar from 2010 to 2013. I asked Parker what gave this Christmas chord its miraculous quality. Oh my God, please don't make me be a theory geek. Um, I believe it's a D minor chord over a B natural, which means that it's a D minor six chord, which then leads to an augmented chord, which helps set you up an A minor. It has a certain sense of longing to it. What's interesting is, is that it doesn't have a sense of arrival by any point. It has a certain sense of strain and drama to it. I had been obsessed with the organ ever since I was a child. I think I was just fascinated by the sound. I think I was fascinated by the fact that the noise came from all over the room. I was fascinated by the use of feet. I was particularly fascinated by the number of keyboards and the multifaceted idea that this is like a piano on, I don't know. Um, steroids? Yeah, steroids <laughs> or, you know, some upper drug. So what was it like for you, a kid from Tennessee, to be playing at Choir of King's College, Cambridge? I admit I still pinch myself every so often to remind myself that it happened because it's an unreal experience. King's is one of these places that doesn't just exist in the building. It really exists in the hearts and minds and I think fantasies of a lot of people around the world, especially in the United States. Every Christmas Eve, about 370 million people tune in to the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols that is broadcast on the BBC. Millions more listen to the service through their local broadcasters. It's a tradition that dates back to 1928, when it was first broadcast on the BBC. So, yeah, playing the organ there is kind of a big deal. But unlike the choir and conductor, we never see the organist. They're tucked far up and away. So you're sort of up there, and you are in this like little chamber upstairs next to the organ, sideways, in the middle with people on either side singing. 
and literally up in the air. And so you're not even on the floor. So sound is traveling kind of to each other and up and swimming around the fan vaulting before it gets to you. And it's you and an organ tech and another organ scholar. And with that position in the rafters, unique challenges arise. So it's a full chapel with an enormous, what, five, six, seven reverb, is that you're playing a note going, uh, and then when you play the note, uh, everyone singing, oh, comes after you. And one of the experiences of playing in Kings is that it takes a long time for sound to travel. It doesn't matter how many people are there singing at the same time, you are actually always going to be ahead of these people. And so the amount of time you would spend really practicing, just playing ahead of the beat, playing ahead of the pulse, is really astonishing. The organist is not the only one faced with immense pressure. Every Lessons and Carols begins with Once in Royal David City. And that hymn begins with a single voice. Once in Royal David City stood You don't know who the boy's going to be, and the boy doesn't know who the boy's going to be. And there are bets going on with the choral scholars as to who it's going to be, and someone makes a lot of money that night, or at least two or three of them do, and they split the money. So they keep it a secret? Yeah, so that's a great way to alleviate pressure at King's, is they have three or four oldest boys who are about to leave the choir next year, and they all prepare it. They know on 15 seconds notice, because the choir's the back, the red light is flashing, the organ is going beep, 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 improvising something to make sure the boy has a note. Directing music points to the boy. He's chosen. The boy steps forward, and he has doesn't have time to get nervous. Ha, huh, that's brilliant. Like, the worst thing you can do to a child is hand them pressure over, like, a long period of time. Of course, it's still a lot of pressure. But at that point, there's a job to do. Jesus boy, they made you be born in a manger, sweet little holy child, didn't know who you was. I'm Dr. Kim Harris. I am the Assistant Professor of African American Thought and Practice at Loyola Marymount University here in Los Angeles. A good deal of my work actually is around African American spirituals, and I like to speak of them as the historic Negro spirituals, keeping them in context. And Kim says that these spirituals bring a different lens to the Christmas story. So we're telling the story through the focus of a poor person, a person living in an occupied land, a family that was unhoused, and who had to deal with a world where they weren't treated well. So we sing this song, you know, based not only on the story, but through the lens of our African-American experience. 
When I bring up the fact that Adeste Fideles may have been a covert song for the Jacobite uprising, Kim says this is an idea that would definitely track in African spirituals as well. You know, there are secrets in the songbooks, in the hymnals, especially because so many of the spirituals were calls to escape. So when you hear the singing of this particular song, there's a star in the east on Christmas morn. Rise up, shepherd, and follow. It will lead to the place where the Savior's born. Rise up, shepherd, and follow. There were times when that song was used as a secret code song to say to people that wanted to escape, to follow the North Star to use the stars to help you get away from slavery, to use the stars to help you go in the right direction, and, and in particular, the North Star to help you either, you know, go north out of a slave state into free territory or into Canada, or to keep the star on your back and head south to where you could get on a ship and go along with some of the black jacks, some of the black sailors who would be sailing out of Mobile, Alabama, and, you know, places like that. So it doesn't surprise me when you talk about the subversion in the song, because that's how we human beings, you know, we communicate. So you wrote an article for America called Black Spirituals Meet the Liturgy, Why I Composed a Mass for Black Catholics. And in it, you talk a lot about these spirituals as having like a call and response element, communal singing, sort of improvised additions to the music, dance. And you say spirituals invite full engagement of the mind, spirit, and body while expressing the existential realities of the community. And I'm wondering if spirituals or this lineage, if they can teach us something about worship. Because the song that we're looking at, Adeste Fideles, it says repeatedly, Oh, come let us adore him. And I'm not sure we all are speaking the same tongue when it comes to worship. Yes, that, that's a good question. There are a few things that came to mind. First of all, it has to do with the communal aspect of the song. Oh, come let us adore him. So it's not, I'm going to go to the manger and kneel and adore him. So when I think of, you know, oh, come let us adore him. When I think of that, I can feel and, and experience the whole community coming to adore this child. So when I say that, I'm talking about the ancestors who had to put their hope in this child who was born in such dire circumstances. They connected that with their own story. I think about the people of our own time who are still struggling for freedom. And I think about the generations to come that are going to be looking back at us saying, what were you doing? <laughs> you know, but also, you know, we hope they'll be inspired by what we do and what we sing. So, oh, come let us adore him. So in a lot of the Christmas carols, but definitely this one, we hear an invitation to worship God or to adore God. And it's always sort of perplexed me in a way why God needs to be worshiped. I mean, I understand that God is God and transcendent and holy. And I think I even understand having an encounter with God elicits a very natural response of awe, of worship, of 
thanksgiving and gratitude all of those things but it's also been a bit of a turnoff to me to think about a god that would demand worship in sort of a feudal king-like way so i'm curious you know thinking about historically oppressed communities how those communities think about worship and adoration so i'll say what i always say to my students because they toss certain words around a lot. And I say, okay, now for the length of this course, we're gonna be really precise as we use these words. And the first one is faith. Faith is a relationship with the divine or relationship that is larger than yourself. So the idea of come let us adore him is about relationship. It's about making sure that you are keeping that relationship going, not thinking that you can do it by yourself, not thinking that you are by yourself. I mean, right now, we're not in charge of something little teeny tiny that can make the whole world sick. We are not in charge. So it's being reminded of our place. You know, that that's how I think about it. I don't think that God needs worship and adoration. God knows who God is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's totally been my feeling as well. But it's a communal summonings to not only worship, but to recall our creaturehood, our great vulnerability, and also dependence on something greater than ourselves. And also dependence on each other. Because if we gather together to worship, then that means there are going to be people there who are happy. There are going to be people there who are sad. There are going to be people that need a prayer. There are going to be people who are mad at God. There are going to be people who have many, many doubts. But if we all come together, we can support each other in all those different places that we are. And, you know, if you're anything like me, I'm all those things all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, any given moment of the day. <laughs> no, and I love that. I think you're putting a different emphasis on this song than I have been hearing before because I always hear it as like an invitation, like come worship, adore God, right? Like it's the directive. But the way that you're helping me to hear it is come let all of us, right? It's just It's an invitation to community, which can hold multitudes. So when we say, you know, sing choirs of angels. And so thinking not only about the human community and all our multiplicities, you know, also thinking about the spiritual community, also bigger than ourselves. When I think of that song, a lot of people sing for uh, as a lullaby, you know, they might sing all night, all day, angels watching over me, my Lord. All night, all day, angels watching over me. I was making a recording of that song one day when all of a sudden it, it burst into my consciousness that for people who were enslaved, whose children had been sold away from them, whose family member may have run away and you don't know where they are or how they are, whose spouse may have been sold from them. The only thing you could hope is that the angels who are watching over all of us would somehow know where they were and how they were. 
So when I think of sing choirs of angels, well, those same angels who are watching over are also invited into this community that is singing and praising and worshiping God. Okamali Faithful is a call not only to those worshiping today. It also calls those who are no longer with us, whom we have known and loved. Who was singing this with us last year that's not singing it with us this year? And to remember that so there can be that sting in the heart. And yet as people of faith, we say they are singing with us still. And the heavenly choirs of angels, they're singing it with them now. So it helps to keep us connected. Hmm. I'm so glad you said that because Christmas can be a really joyful time. But then at some point, you know, when we lose people that we love, there is a real bittersweetness to the season. And so, yeah, I just am grateful for you to lift that up and, you know, say that they are still really singing and celebrating just with the angels. So what can we say about O Come All Ye Faithful? Or should I say, Adeste Fideles? I hope I have it right by now. Well, if you're a Catholic, you've probably belted out this carol on Christmas Eve more in Latin than in English. But this traditional divide is likely more a thing of the past. Today you can sing it with gusto in English, or whatever language you like. And while we're on the English, it's possible that when Frederick Oakley adapted this carol into English, it was intended more as an ode to the hoped-for English king, Bonnie Prince Charlie, than to Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. But that shouldn't take away from the carol's profound reliance on scriptural themes and the rich theology present in the text. And finally, the invitation to come and adore Christ our Lord is meant for the entire beloved community on earth and in heaven. This is a hymn that calls all of us to the manger to see Jesus Christ born this happy morn. But not yet. Christmas is still a few weeks away. So resist singing that final verse until midnight mass. My favorite recording of O Come All Ye Faithful is by King's College, Cambridge. And it's conducted by Sir Stephen Cleaver. It was the last time basically he conducted that service he died on the 22nd of November 2019, the Feast of St. Cecilia, who's the patron saint of music and musicians. Yeah, fitting for a choir director. It's on a CD called The Centenary Service, and it commemorated 100 years of the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols in 2018.
think I'm finished now. I'm exhausted. Thank you for listening to Hark. Before you go, I've got one more piece of good news. My colleagues at America have written daily Advent reflections for our digital subscribers. To sign up, go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. And if you're enjoying Hark, we'd love for you to share it with a friend, a colleague, or on social media. It really helps us grow the show. Hark is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me and Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering, along with our theme music, is courtesy of Frank Tucson. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon and Jim McDermott. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Special thanks to the choir of King's College, Cambridge, and the Ignatian Scola for allowing us to play parts of the recordings of O Come All Ye Faithful, and to Ricardo Da Silva and Frank Tucson for their vocals. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. Thanks for listening. On our final episode of Hark, we're diving into a staple carol of midnight masses everywhere. It was erroneously attributed to some different people, and I think part of that was because people wanted it to have been written by a Mozart or a Beethoven. They wanted it to be somebody really big and famous so that they could probably distribute it faster. But it has very humble origins. <laughs>